Our first lesson is a reading from the book of Deuteronomy, beginning with the 18th chapter, the 15th verse. Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God to see this great fire anymore lest I die and the Lord said to me they are right in what they have spoken I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him and whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name I myself will require it of him but the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The second lesson is a reading from the Holy Gospel according to St. Mark, beginning with the first chapter, the 14th verse. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not just as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him and they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying what is this a new teaching with authority he commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him and at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee the word of the Lord thanks be to God well, I speak to you in the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Well, today's gospel passage that we just heard from Mark picks up right where we left off last week. And I have to acknowledge that to this point in chapter 1, Mark has already managed to cover a ton of ground. In just his first 20 verses, he described John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus through the ministry of baptism. He then described John's baptism of Jesus, followed by Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. And then that temptation was immediately followed with what we read last week, when Jesus began his public ministry, entering into the region of Galilee and proclaiming to anyone who would listen, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And calling his first disciples to follow him, 
four fishermen whom he promised to make into fishers of men. Last week we talked about how this metaphor of being a fisher of men may sound genial and quaint to us, but it isn't genial for the fish. And yet, the fish represents us, along with those whom we might seek to make disciples. All of us in our human condition are unfortunately inclined to resist most every effort the Lord makes to fish us, if you will, more into the life of his kingdom. Even though it's what's best for us, it requires a dying to self that can be so hard to submit to. Well, immediately following all of this our passage is our passage today where Jesus, now with four disciples in tow, heads with them into the town of Capernaum, which means actually the village of Nahum. This was a town known for its fishing industry as it's on the Sea of Galilee's northwest edge. And Jesus' intention in going here to Capernaum seems to be to continue his ministry of fishing for men and women. On the Sabbath, he enters into the Capernaum synagogue where many would have been gathered for Sabbath worship. Now these worship services in those days, they're thought to have usually consisted of readings from scripture followed by instruction in that scripture or about that scripture as well as prayers and blessings. And typically, this teaching was done by a lay scribe, right? So since a non-ordained person, but who was somewhat educated in the scriptures, who would relay what he knew of the traditional teachings passed down on whatever were the scriptures of the day. But on occasion, a traveling rabbi would come through, and the lay scribe would then defer to that rabbi and allow him to teach welcoming the opportunity to hear from someone with more advanced knowledge and expertise. And the end of verse 21 indicates that the leaders of the Capernaum synagogue granted Jesus just such an opportunity, only to be astonished. According to verse 22, they were astonished that Jesus taught them as one who had authority. What astonished them was that unlike the scribes they were used to hearing from, who would simply exposit the scriptures and relay what they'd learned from the rabbinic tradition, Jesus taught with an entirely different level of authority. Instead, Jesus taught with the authority of a prophet, whose words were like the very words of God, one speaking on God's behalf. And indeed, we know that Jesus was the prophet. In fact, he was the prophet that they had for centuries expected God to send, as Moses foretold in that passage from Deuteronomy 18 that we heard this morning. We know that Jesus was that long-awaited prophet. We also know he was more than that. However, we shouldn't interpret the people's reception of Jesus' teaching, their amazement, astonishment as necessarily being entirely positive. William Lane, who's one of the preeminent scholars in the Gospel of Mark, insists that we should understand this response of those in the synagogue to reflect not simply excitement, 
but at least to include at least some mixture of fear and alarm. Of course, we don't know exactly all that Jesus would have taught to them or said to them, but based on what Mark discloses earlier in the chapter about Jesus' proclamation to people, we can pretty safely assume it at least included a call for them to repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, which might have been something they weren't too keen to do. And the notion that the people in this synagogue were at least some of them or many of them were fearful and alarmed with Jesus' teaching and his presence, that fits with what we next learn, that Jesus' presence and teaching immediately provokes a man with an unclean spirit to cry out. And the Greek word here for crying out means to scream in a guttural fashion. He cries, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now to clarify, an unclean spirit is just another name for a demon. Mark uses the two words interchangeably. And these demons or unclean spirits are created beings, fallen angels, And they were called unclean spirits because in Judaism, unclean meant anything contrary to the holiness of God. And so these spirits were understood to be these spiritual beings who have an influence on individuals and people groups, but one that is negative and opposed to these people's life and wholeness and the goodness of God and that God desires for humankind. But as readers, we've probably been prone to read this verse of the demon speaking through this man. We probably have been prone to read it as indicating a demonic stronghold only within him, this one individual. But it is significant that the demon twice says, a plural pronoun says, us. He doesn't say, what have you come to do with me, Jesus? Have you come to destroy me? He says, us. He is speaking defensively on behalf of many. Now we might then jump to conclude, well, perhaps this one man was possessed by multiple demons, particularly if we're familiar with the story of the Gadarene demoniac four chapters later, for whom that was the case, right? He was full of many demons. But here, scholar Lane and others insist that the most obvious interpretation is that this demon is speaking of many on behalf of many in the synagogue. And the agitation that they're feeling in response to Jesus' holy presence and prophetic teaching. Or that the demon is at least speaking on behalf of the principalities who have a spiritual stronghold in and over that congregation. Well, after Jesus silences and casts out the demon, this only raises emotions in the synagogue even more. Verse 27 says, and they were all amazed. Now again, here the word for amazed can be either negative or positive. But in the very least, it is probably best not to read it as meaning unmixed joy, that everybody was just thrilled. Rather, we should probably best read it that some may have been excited, while others, though, were afraid and disturbed. 
And finally, the same goes for the word translated fame in the final verse. We're told that Mark says, and at once his fame, Jesus' fame, spread everywhere through all the surrounding region of Galilee. But this Greek word translated fame by the ESV, it literally just means hearing, right? So this could mean that reports of Jesus, news, even rumors, then spread everywhere throughout Galilee. Well, I'm guessing that this element of the demonic manifesting in the middle of synagogue worship could make this passage feel somewhat unrelatable to us individually or as a parish. The reality is that in the, at least the past 300 years or so since the Enlightenment, the secular world has rejected the notion that anything like demons even exist, consigned that notion to the trash bin of superstition or fantasy, along with most anything else supernatural. However, Scripture constrains us from going along with such a wholesale dismissal. And certainly many of us have at least heard accounts of demonic or miraculous, perhaps, manifestations that seem credible, even if we haven't experienced them ourselves. But reports of supernatural occurrences that do seem credible, you may have noticed, they usually seem to occur most frequently in other places, right? Specifically in less developed, even third world countries. I'm generalizing, but maybe you've kind of, a, kind of noticed that. Perhaps, like me, you've wondered why that seems to be the case. Well, the best explanation I've heard for this is that it is in places where the gospel has no foothold at all that demonic manifestations or miracles that witness to the power of the gospel are most likely to occur. That's, it's not that supernatural events don't ever occur here in Western society, but it is to explain why they may seem to occur much less frequently because the gospel already has a foothold. But this theory that demons and miracles are more likely to manifest where the gospel has no foothold, where it hasn't yet broken through, that would fit with the context of our passage, wouldn't it? Because Jesus' teaching would have been the first ever introduction of the gospel of the kingdom of God to the people in that synagogue. And if that synagogue had for years been a stronghold for spiritual darkness and blindness, it makes sense, frankly, that the appearance of Christ, of the God-man himself, holy as he is, that that would feel extremely threatening and disruptive to those principalities, enough to lead to an outburst like Mark describes. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. All this is to say, though, that there may be some significant reasons why an occurrence like we read about here in this passage may seem foreign to us. That's okay. After all, this parish is a Christian church where the gospel certainly has a foothold, thanks be to God, unlike that Capernaum synagogue Jesus walked into. Moreover, we live in a time 
and in a land and in a society where the gospel is not foreign. If anything, the problem in our society is that the gospel is beginning to be left behind. And individually for us as Christians, we cannot be under demonic control because we are Christ. We have been bought with a prize. That's not to say that evil can't influence us, that demons can't influence us, however you want to think about it. But ultimately, we have been bought with a prize and received the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And yet, despite all of these differences, there is still plenty that we have in common with the condition in which Jesus finds these Capernaum Jews. As a parish that we are of fallen human beings, it is inevitable that there are going to be errant beliefs and blind spots endemic here that are decisively anti-kingdom, opposed to the kingdom of God. As members of American society, or any society, but in our case, the American society, we're going to be susceptible to no shortage of idols that are, are opposed to the kingdom of God. And personally, each one of us will inevitably be entangled in some measure of sinful attitudes and behaviors that are contrary to the holy life Jesus desires us to have. As we mentioned last week with the fish, in our sinful condition, this is a problem for all of us, right? There's a line of evil through every human heart. And it's a problem for everyone that we're called to minister to. All of us are inclined, in some ways, to be irrationally resistant to the kingdom life Christ invites us into. And so even if we never experience anything nearly as dramatic as a demon manifesting, this should not be taken to mean that there are not still strongholds of sin harbored within us both as individual believers and corporately as a parish. And therefore, the good news of this passage is most certainly good news for us. In verse 25, Jesus responds by rebuking this demon and saying, be silent and come out of him. And the demon does. And we're next told that the, that the unclean spirit convulsed the man and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. Well, with this, Jesus demonstrates that he is powerful over all evil. That Jesus is not only capable, but that he desires to drive out evil from us individually and collectively and to set things to right to usher in the godly order of his kingdom reign it is an understatement to say that this what we see in this passage is good news for us and yet we should be careful to note that such sanctification making us holier does not just happen as the late James Baldwin wisely wrote, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. And so we must be willing to have God search our hearts. 
We must be in the habit of welcoming prophetic revelations that uncover our individual and collective sins. But by all indications, those who encountered Jesus and heard him speak on God's behalf, not just in this one synagogue, but throughout the Gospels, for the most part, most of them wanted little to do with that. Most of them preferred, frankly, life in the darkness more than they desired to come into the more of the light. And the most religious seemed to have been no exception. Mark will report Jesus entering synagogues again later in chapter 1 and then once in chapter 3 and finally in chapter 6. But there in chapter 6, Jesus is rejected by the synagogue in his hometown. And after that, he never goes into a synagogue again. Jesus teaches his disciples in homes, and he teaches crowds out in the open, as Mark reports it. Because by then, synagogues had become such a symbol of consistent hostility toward his ministry. And that, of course, is a warning to us. This seems to indicate how as humans we can be quite religious while at the same time being wholly disinterested in self-examination. It's one thing to go through the motions of ritual and sacrament. It's a whole other thing to do that with a, a heart and a posture of humility and repentance. But there is no way for the kingdom to expand or increase in our lives so long as we resist that posture of humility and repentance. Yes, it is true that God loves us just as we are. Yes, it is also true that God loves us too much to let us stay just as we are. But God will not violate our wills. If we don't let him in, he'll stay out. If we don't welcome his light, it'll stay dark. Repentance is a posture we must take up as a lifestyle. And apart from it, we are sure to miss out on the greater freedom that the Lord has planned for us. So my encouragement in response to this passage today is first of all in regard to ourselves. That we should actually seek to identify with the people of this synagogue. Right? As much as we might be disinclined to think, oh, that's them and that's their problem and they got demons manifesting, right? We should push through that and seek to identify with the people in that synagogue and not think of ourselves so much as, so much as beholden to a demon but as being in continued enslavement to sin to some degree or another and as being resistant to Jesus leading us further into the light of his truth. And yet, once again, as I said last week, I hope that we will also be compassionate toward ourselves, toward any resistance we detect, toward entering into the Lord's light. After all, some of us may have been taught just the opposite. May have been taught, even in the church, even in a Christian home, whatever that means, may have been taught that we had to have everything figured out. We may have never had humility or admitting we could be wrong modeled for us at all. 
So if that's the case, we must not condemn ourselves. The evil one would love nothing more than for us to condemn ourselves if we detect resistance. Rather, we should speak encouragement to ourselves that Jesus is good. That we can trust him wherever he wants to lead us. Whatever he may bring into light. That that coming into his light can be painful for a time, but it is always good. It always bears good fruit because he is Lord and he is our good shepherd. And so it will always result in greater freedom for us to do that. So that's my first encouragement in regard to ourselves. But secondly, I I hope this passage will encourage us in how we go about living into our great commission to make disciples of all nations as, as last week's passage encouraged us we would probably do well to view most people who are living apart from God, if not most people, period, as being, if not like that man demonized, at least like those in the synagogue. Understanding that that for the men and women in that synagogue who were alarmed by Jesus' teaching and, and irrationally resistant to the salvation he sought to bring them, Understanding that that wasn't, enti- uh, that wasn't primarily a cognitive, intellectual resistance. No, they were afraid. Fear's not rational. They felt threatened. I think we would do well to view those that we seek to love into the kingdom or more into the kingdom through that lens. Because fear is never rational, if we seek to engage people in that fearful position with logical arguments for the gospel, I think we should actually be pretty pessimistic that that will bear a lot of good fruit. Now this isn't to say that we can't be rational at all, that we can't explain ourselves, explain our perspective of experience to them, But we need to do so in mind that that's not how the war will be won, right? That may may be one little step, but overall, no one is going to be argued or bullied or shamed into the kingdom. Nobody. Those who will someday enter the kingdom or enter into more of it are only going to be ushered in through love. As a friend of mine says, and I don't think he came up with this, but he said, you can't engage the Great Commission without the Great Commandment of love, love of God and neighbor. He says, people don't care what you know till they know that you care. People don't care what you know till they know that you care. And you're not trying to reach them for the gospel just for your own ego, right? Just to get another stat on your little spiritual baseball card. You're mine. I do this, right? We're all prone to that, that ego-driven Great Commission stuff. Instead, it's been said that our mentality with evangelism should be that we are just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. But before I close, that that brings up one small extra little point, that that people have to be hungry 
They have to see themselves as beggars before they will seek to get out to find food. Right? You're not going to look for food if you aren't hungry. And so how we interact with them and beseeching God to love and care others through us in a way that we would otherwise be incapable of in our sin and imperfection, interacting with them with that love can make people hungry and thirsty. Resistance to the kingdom in any form is spiritual and therefore it can only have a spiritual solution. And the way we can be part of that solution is by above all else putting on love because God is love. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, Amen.